270, Part 4, Chapters 5 and 6. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 270. Come on in, the barbecue's fine. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And this week we are also brought to you by Audible. Audible, my favorite companion as I run around like a crazy person. At least I can listen to a good book. And you know, I continuously say when people are like, oh, I hate running errands. Oh, I hate, oh, I hate cleaning. Oh, I'm like, hey, stick a book in your ear. You can listen to the podcast or... You can download the Audible app for just about every mobile platform you've got going for you and listen to books. I I made a tactical error while in Dallas and I did not download uh, a new book while I was in my hotel room and on Wi-Fi. And hello, Hampton Inn. Thank you, Hampton Inn. Free Wi-Fi. Excellent breakfast. I actually kind of ridiculously, brought frozen gluten-free English muffins with me. I brought a whole pack and I I placed them on the air conditioner wrapped in a towel. And I just hoped that they would last because gluten-free products tend to go bad faster than regular ones do. But it worked. And every morning at the Hampton Inn in Arlington, Texas, I or Grand Prairie, Texas. I'm not entirely sure where the battle lines are drawn between the towns in the greater Dallas area. There are many and they are very close to each other. They're on top of each other. One side of the highway is one town. One side of the highway is the other town. Anyway, I had my gluten-free English muffins and I could take them down and toast them up in the toaster, which I kind of brushed out to make sure there wasn't any glutinous residue. And uh, oatmeal and, and yogurt and fruit, fresh fruit, fresh cut fruit. It was marvelous. It was like breakfast. And it was all right there waiting for me at the Hampton Inn. I, I have no complaints. Comfortable, clean, fast, easy, marvelous service. I would stay there again in a heartbeat. It was just wonderful. And so there I was getting on the, uh, getting to the airport. Once I was at the airport, I, uh, I didn't have anything to listen to. So I went on my Audible app and I was able to hook up to the free Dallas airport Wi-Fi, perhaps my favorite part of the Dallas airport. And boom, I re-downloaded a book that I'd had sitting in my queue for a very long time. I'd read it 20 years ago, and I'd, eh, I'd kind of hesitated. I think it was 20 years, maybe it was 19 years ago. I'd kind of hesitated. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to listen to it again, but my son read it. So I went ahead and listened to it again. I'm almost done, because it's an epic. And I'm 
so impressed. The readers, they have a cast of readers, but it is a non-intrusive cast. There are different voices telling the story. Yes, I'll tell you what the book is in a second. There are different voices telling the story, and and they do have different readers doing that, but they don't do it like it's a script. You know, they don't do it like a radio play. They have a narrator telling the voice from the main character's point of view. And then when the point of view switches to his sister, they have a female narrator telling it. Uh, her story. The book is called Ender's Game. And if you've never read it before, Orson Scott Card, who wrote this book, I think does a, a really marvelous job of really getting inside the mind of a very, very bright child. And if you have ever been, been around or known any truly uniquely bright children, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I mean when I say it's, it's rare to find someone who gets inside their mind and can see and understand how they think and process and view the world. And, uh, and Ender's Game is it's just a smashingly good story to begin with. It is science fiction, technically, but a large chunk of what was fiction is no science fact. <laughs> and, uh, and the terminology is pretty darn close to what wound up happening. He wrote it in like, I don't know, 86 89, something like that. It was a while ago, before there were interwebs. At least before there were interwebs, like we know them. But a great book and a good read. And I, I love the voice of the, the main narrator. He has this very wonderful, rumbly, kind of deep voice that carries quite a bit of gravitas with it, which you might think is kind of odd if the protagonist begins as a six-year-old. And yes, that's true. And earlier on in the book, it did kind of strike me as terribly, terribly strange. But the voice has, has grown on me, and I think I think it was actually quite a good choice, if only because you need to find some way to convey the fact that Ender himself is full of gravitas, even as a six-year-old. So it's been a good listen. So you can head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash craftlet and start your very own free trial period on Audible and, uh, and grab Ender's Game. It's really, it's really good. And, uh, and then we can get into a big discussion about that over on the Ravelry site <laughs> with the Craftlet listeners. I hope those of you who are not knitters have joined Ravelry just so you can see the brilliant comments that people are posting over at Ravelry because they are. We have the best discussions going on over there, and I haven't commented in ages because things have been so nuts, but I am planning on coming back and lurking again. First, I have to make a public service announcement. The Hand Knitters Guild of North Central Texas is located in Arlington. They are not the Arlington Guild, because not all of them live in Arlington, but their meetings are held in Arlington. The Dallas Guild is from Dallas. I stayed pretty much the whole time in Arlington in my little uh, neck of the woods there. And I loved it. I'm horrified by how much driving all y'all have to do. But I am blown away by the barbecue. <laughs> uh, Knitting Rose of the Knitting Rose podcast, she and Big Texan and Knitting Fairy from the Knitting Fairy shop. We all went and had barbecue one night and we went to a place called the Feed Store, which is exactly what you would like your barbecue place to look like and be like on the inside. The 
food was stunning. I am drooling thinking about this barbecue. It was so good. Texas barbecue? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had chopped brisket wet, and I had beef ribs dry, and I got the mild sauce, which was really, really good. And I am not joking. I actually just had to swallow because I was salivating so much. Holy smoke. I'm in love with Texas barbecue. I know there are Carolina barbecues. There's Atlanta barbecue. There's all different barbecues. Mm-hmm. Texas. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. The other thing I wanted to do a public service announcement for is the term y'all. Now, I know that there are many people who scorn y'all. And I am here to tell you that when I taught in New York City, it became apparent to me that y'all is a completely useful term for a very specific reason. Unlike other, perhaps more intelligent languages, we in the English-speaking world do not have a second-person plural. This is ridiculous, and it makes things very, very difficult. Like when I was teaching high school, lots of other teachers said, you guys, da, da, da. I am not going to call a, group, a room full of boys and girls, you guys, there are girls there. And I'm an English teacher, so I'm trying to demonstrate precision in language using words like thingy and duty bobber. But I am also not going to call them ladies and gentlemen because they rarely were. And I would tell them that and they would laugh and giggle and that was fine. But we did need a second person plural, some way to say all of you quickly and easily. And there is the word y'all in the admittedly slang lexicon, but it is in the lexicon. So I started using y'all when I taught high school. And then that graduates to all y'all because there's there are different degrees of yallitude. And uh, and so I was I was in heated discussions with my my Dallas and Arlington knitters about about the uh, usage and the brilliance, I think, of the term y'all. We were all in agreement. We were we were defending ourselves against a a non-existent detractor. We we all agreed that y'all is a very very useful term. So that was a lot of fun. But I have to say, wow, Arlington and Dallas, you guys have some of the best knitters I have ever taught, ever. I would come back in a heartbeat. I had so much fun, and the knitters were so smart and just on their game. And it's it's really marvelous to have a group of people who are not only smart knitters, but curious knitters. And uh, it's just, it's a dream job when when that happens. It was exhausting. And I, you know, I went into it not having slept a whole lot and I, I still needed to catch up on my sleep when I came home. But it's exhausting in that really marvelous rousing kind of way and uh and uh, if you ever have a chance to travel to the greater dallas area find out if the guilds are meeting because if you are able to visit either of the guilds i guarantee you you will meet some of the most wonderful marvelous sweet funny wicked senses of humor oh my gosh we had so much fun it's just it's just a joy it just made me happy so, thank you to the Hand Knitters Guild, 
of North Central Texas and the Dallas Hand Knitters Guild for providing me with such a great opportunity to meet you and share what I've learned with you and, and have so much fun. And if you missed it, we had lots of pictures. I was Instagramming as I was there of Cheddar with uh, a new friend for Cheddar, Fromage. Fromage, who also at one point looked like Ratsputin. So we had, we had, and there was really no alcohol involved at that point. We were just having a good time. So that was fun. Uh, other newsy news, there is the new Mittens and Hats from Around the World book. I have two new Finnish designs in there. There's also another hat version that is slightly more traditional in its construction and I will be releasing that pattern uh, shortly. I just needed to uh, hand it off to the the tech editor for one last pass just to make sure and then uh, and then we'll be releasing that to everyone. The uh, subscriber supporters you will be getting that in a free link through uh, an upcoming newsletter and to everyone else that will then be posted on the show notes uh, within the next couple of weeks for your pattern pleasure. Um, the other thing I needed to let you know is remember Christine who did the marvelous tin of tans? Well, that has moved out of the free state and into the it's in her shop state. So I've provided you a link to her new shop because you won't be able to use the old link anymore. And, uh, and so if you have crochet friends who you think would like to be doing little tins of tans for Christmas presents or things like that, you can send them to her shop. We also have Maggie over at Happy Hands who sent me some samples during, uh, during all the, the surgery chaos that was. And oh my gosh, she makes the most wonderful emollients ever go over to her happy hand store and also do you remember like a long time ago i mentioned finding these notes for knitters cards or notes for knitters she's the one who does those too so if you're looking for note cards that are of a sheepy bent or a knitterly bent go look at her shop i have links from the craftlit.com show notes for episode 270 and uh, and you can get there from from uh, from that location and, uh, and go check out her stuff. I'm so excited. Now, all sorts of things are, are updating and changing. We have new sponsors for the new books. We have lots of exciting things happening. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm starting, just starting to work on, is organizing people to interview for the podcast based on those of you who have filled out the form on the craftlet.com website. If you are interested in being interviewed for the show, just to talk about what you do when you listen, please fill out the form. We have some really interesting people who listen. And I'm going to try and get to everyone because I, it's just, you guys are so cool. You do all sorts of weird and interesting things while you're listening to the podcast. And I just, I think everybody would get a kick out of it. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, the other thing is Cool for Cats. This week, for the subscriber supporters, we are back. It is one of my favorite and most exciting chapters in Cool for Cats. So that's coming. And more Wuthering Heights. Um, John Scholes, our uh, Jonathan Harker, and our Chaucer reader. Um, he, at first, oh, he's still in the hospital, but it's, it's, it's good news. I got an email back from John that they've found they've procured an experimental drug and everybody was very upbeat 
and his tone had changed. And and so he's he's on the upswing. So he's he's being taken care of quite well. And uh, I am greatly relieved. But it's you know until he's until he's out and able to record, we are um, we're just on hold with Chaucer, and then we'll get back to it. And I don't mind waiting to get his voice back at all. So I hope I hope you are are feeling the same with me, and please do include him in your thoughts and prayers as you go through the day. He has such a, a marvelous voice and such a a lovely spirit and soul, and I I'm just so glad that even in a a small small way, um, he knows that we're we're there and uh, and thinking thinking good thoughts at him, and uh, and I know he'll continue to get better. Over on Chopbard, Chopbard podcast has started Henry Four, which is just marvelous and even more exciting. I'm actually going to be part of it. I'm so excited! I haven't done Shakespeare for uh, oh, twenty three years, so I'm practicing a lot. But I'm very excited. I have a really, I have a really cool part. You know, women in Shakespeare, the parts are usually pretty small. Except for you know Juliet or Lady Macbeth. Even Lady Macbeth is not a huge part, but uh, but they're always interesting. Rarely does he just kind of throw away a woman. They usually have something interesting to do or say. The nurse in Romeo and Juliet, one of my favorite parts. I get to be in Henry IV, so I will keep you posted on when that will happen, and then uh, and then everybody can go listen and, and make fun of me. <laughs> oh, question four all y'all. I need to make a book. I need to make a book online. It needs to be pictures and text. The Mac iPhoto app will let you make a picture book, but it's very, very challenging to add text and resize it in a way that makes it possible to see. So, I don't know. Is there an app out there for Mac that allows you to do these things? Is there a better app for this than iPhoto? Is there an online source that allows you to load text and pictures? If so, please put links in the show notes. I need to do this yesterday. And um, and any help you have or ideas you have would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Yuka, winner of the Lucy Neatby Knit Companion app, if you uh, are hearing your name here, but have not gotten an email from me, check your spam filter. I'm going to send you emails from a couple of different emails today, and uh, and we'll try and track you down. Otherwise, I think we're going to have to default to another listener as the winner of the Lucy Neatby Knit Companion Collection. Very cool. And uh, did you hear the sad news? Lucy Neatby got, got punked by uh, an app builder. Uh, not knit companion. That's just fine. But she was trying to do, I thought, a very smart thing of getting her information out to uh, users, iPad users, so that you could link directly through her app to her uh, YouTube videos and information and get on her mailing list and all that kind of good stuff. And then it just, 
something horrible, horrible, horrible went down with the company that had built the app for her and, and she got burned. So if you have the bright pink Lucy Neatby app, get rid of it. They seem to be just mining information and that is sad and pathetic. And, uh, and, and kind of the whole community, it was as I was on my way to Dallas, the whole community really rallied around her and got helped to get the word out and, and let everybody know not to use that app. So the Knit Companion app, the one that you purchase, is just fine. And the free Lucy Neepy app is sadly um, not to be put on your device. Uh, I don't think on an iPad it can actually suck any information out the way that malware can on your desktop computer, but it does ask you for personal information when you open the app and you do not want to add it there. So that was very sad. All right, then we have Gulliver's Travels. We're getting so close to the end of the book. It is, it is both exciting and sad as we head towards the end, but there it is. And you know, we've got more good books coming, but Gulliver. So here we are in the final section and I've already told you it is a sad section, but for those of us who love horses, and I include myself in this category, even though I do not own a horse and don't ride regularly. Anyway, horses, I'm just saying, have that special bond with lots of girls. And I was no different. So for me, there's that, well, of course, Swift would go to horses for the last part of the book. They are truly beautiful animals. They are sleek. They are majestic. They are big. They possess that kind of quiet, dominant strength that you just innately respect. And I, and I think that it's interesting to me, as a female who was like, oh, horses, when I was little, that, that the things that I saw and respected and loved in horses also seem to translate to the adult world and to even Swift's world. And certainly when you've spent enough time around horses, you know they are communicating with you. You can watch their ears, watch their tail, watch their eyes, watch how they're holding their head, uh, watch what they're doing with their mouth, and you can, you can understand them. So it's not that huge a step to saying, okay, so they have their own language. And it sounds like whinnying. And so the whinnums whinny in a meaningful way. So that's fine. That's not that big a stretch. Well, today Swift heads into two of his most brutal satiric chapters. Uh, the first one is just on law. And the second one is on uh, governance and specifically war. And he, <laughs> he holds nothing back in these two chapters at all. And, and in fact, if you think back to when I said, you know, oh, it's interesting here because he's, he's walking right up to the precipice, right up to the brink, and he's not mentioning monarchies or monarchy or rulers. And he's certainly not mentioning anyone by name in these chapters, but it's almost as though he's been rolling along like a snowball, building himself bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger like he's like he's going to build the base to a snowman and he started with a little ball and now it's you know a three foot wide massive snowman baseball <laughs> ball, ball that will become a base for for a very big hulking threatening snowman yeah he doesn't seem to be afraid very much in these two chapters 
This is, this is coming from a man who was burned by the legal system. And in fact, if you read Bleak House, which we'll probably do someday, Julie over at Forgotten Classics is reading it right now. And she prompted my husband to read it as well. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting uh, tandem commentary from bo- in my ears from, from both of them at different times. And uh, Bleak House has a lot to do with the Chancery Court, the, the same court system that Swift was criticizing earlier in this book. Well, that's fine. We would expect nothing less from Swift than to go after uh, a person or an institution who he felt had wronged him. We've all heard lawyer jokes before. You know, what would you, even Shakespeare, what would you do for, kill all the lawyers? Uh, the sharks and uh, sharks won't eat lawyers because it's professional courtesy. All those jokes? Yeah. Um, Swift goes way past all of those into really kind of, wow, you got away with saying that territory? He also, in this section, goes after uh, doctors, medicine in general. And of course, uh, in his day, the understanding of medicine and what actually caused illness was slightly incomplete, one might say. And so you're, you're going to hear some stuff where you're like, oh, wow, that's kind of uh, creative. But of course, you know, it was a couple hundred years ago that he wrote this, and so it's not a surprise that he gets things like that wrong. Along with medicine and the law, he's also going to go after religion, which is not that big a surprise to any of us. But it is interesting because what he what he does is he takes very complicated doctrinal level uh, debates that are happening within the religious world, and he reduces them to the most absurd, small limited conversation points. It's it's like the difference between having a real debate, an Oxford debate, and talking points. And he is a master at this kind of reduction. He also takes uh, quite a bit of time at the beginning of the first chapter to kind of give a, an overview of the political intrigue of the royalty prior to George. And I will, I will deal with that after you listen to the chapters. It's not that important for understanding what's happening, but it is kind of an interesting tidbit, tidbit to see where, he, where he's going with that. Uh, so we'll do that on the, on the flip side. He also, in a couple of places, kind of goes after the women, which uh, I have a sense was probably not just him going after the women, but probably a fairly common uh, pastime <laughs> of his day. Uh, especially when it comes to illness, you know, that women are, we've heard it before, women are weaker, women are this, women are that, uh, probably more hypochondriacal than uh, men were. Although, ladies, let's speak privately, if we may may for a moment, um, gentlemen, you can go off and do something else for a little while. Ladies, I think I can say with some security that we've all seen what happens when a man gets sick, and we all know how we can feel and yet still get food on the table for the children and stuff like that. I happen to be lucky enough that I am married to a husband who, if I am sick, he will, in fact, get food on the He gets the boys breakfast every day just to make sure that I get my eight hours of sleep or close to it because we all know that a well-rested Heather is a happy Heather. And if I have trouble going to sleep at night, he will, uh, he will do the boys in the morning. But that being said... When he gets sick, he still acts like a guy. He doesn't get sick very often, so 
I don't mind so much. But I have seen friends who have had the flu and their husband gets the flu at the same time and they are the ones dragging their butts out of bed and getting the chicken soup on the table. By the way, if you missed it, Jewish penicillin, the chicken soup thing, it's real. Uh, I'll see if I can find the article. It came out a couple of years ago, but there really is something about chicken soup that is very good for you when you are ill, especially if you have the flu or something like that. So perhaps freeze some chicken soup while you are feeling well so that all you have to do is defrost it and heat it up next time. <laughs> next time you're both sick. <sighs> okay, gentlemen, you can come back because you're wonderful and you never get sick and you're always strong and virile. And if you ever do get sick, you never whine or make us wait on you hand and foot or anything like that. And we appreciate that. We really do. So back to Swift. Forlorn. Forlorn is a word you will hear used in its archaic sense, which uh, it evidently is uh, from the German word forlorn, which means lost or abandoned. So when you hear the word forlorn in, uh, in these two chapters, it doesn't mean sad or miserable. It, it means lost. You will hear him talking about an act of indemnity, which uh, rulers use to, he says, secure themselves from the after from after reckonings and retire from the public laden with the spoils of the nation. This would be not unlike uh, a president who did something illegal, getting pardoned and still being able to live on his public pension, which uh, with all the talks of public pensions and things like that, you'll notice that Congress hasn't touched their own. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. It kind of doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on on that one. It seems that Congress should probably have to live by the laws that the rest of us do. Oh, am I better? <laughs> Having been a public school teacher? I was talking with a friend about that that social contract, you know, Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau and Jefferson and Franklin and, and all of these people, there was, and Patrick Henry, there was this understanding that there's a, a, a social contract that we all enter into as part of being people in a democracy. And that when, when you are talking to teachers and firemen and, and policemen, that there's a, it doesn't matter which side of the, the aisle you're on. If you are in those professions, you go in with this understanding that you are taking a low paying job, which is something you want to do and are probably pretty darn good at doing. But there is this understanding that at the end of you doing your time, you will have a decent pension that you can live on. And so while I, while I understand the economic discussion that is happening about the money involved, the money that's been, been promised, um, nobody is talking about that social contract thing. And it's, it's kind of Swiftian. It's the, the almost a bait and switch thing. And I, I just keep thinking, God, you know, we couldn't be reading Jonathan Swift at a better time than this. Now pay attention towards the end of chapter six. He is going to, Swift is going to talk about the colors of the horses and the classed system that is based on their colors. And listen to who's at the top. I'm, I don't know, I don't know where this came from. I don't know what was going on in Swift's mind. And I don't know whether he was trying to make a point 
or not, but it's interesting because it's not the white horses on top. I, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know if any of you who are listening know where this came from, but I think it's fascinating that the Huinims have a very, very seriously classed society, and it does not mirror, uh, or mirrors in reverse, but it, it, uh, it does not reflect the same society that Swift was living in, and I think it's fascinating. And the other thing I think is kind of interesting, again, at the end of chapter six, is if you remember way back um, with... Uh, in, in the third section, the Laputa section, and, and all of those different different places that he he traveled to, he 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 said that the the noble families were facing their uh, downturn because of the women being um, the perpetrators of numerous infidelities, and that it was that kind of weakening of the bloodlines that was causing their uh, people's ruination. Listen to how he describes it here when he's describing England, not Laputa, not other people. Now he's talking about the English noble class and commoners. And again, I say this is, it's so interesting. It's really like he worked up the gumption over the course of the three books to really put it out there and say what was really on his mind here. And wow, yeah, so there it is, Gulliver's Travels. So today, chapters five and six of part four of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Chapter five, the author at his master's commands informs him of the state of England, the causes of war among the princes of Europe the author begins to explain the English Constitution. The reader may please to observe that the following extract of many conversations I had with my master contains a summary of the most material points which were discoursed at several times for above two years. His honor often desiring fuller satisfaction as I farther improved in the Huinam tongue. I laid before him as well as I could the whole state of Europe, I discoursed of trade and manufactures, of arts and sciences, and the answers I gave to all, the questions he made, as they arose upon several subjects, were a fund of conversation not to be exhausted. But I shall here only set down the substance of what passed between us concerning my own country, reducing it in order as well as I can, without any regard to time or other circumstances, while I strictly adhere to truth. My only concern is that I shall hardly be able to do justice to my master's arguments and expressions, which must needs suffer by my want of capacity as well as by a translation into our barbarous English. In obedience, therefore, to his honour's commands, I related to him the revolution under the Prince of Orange, the long war with France entered into by the said prince, and renewed by his successor, the present queen, wherein the greatest powers of Christendom were engaged, and which still continued. I computed, at his request, that about a million of yahoos might have been killed in the whole progress of it, and perhaps a hundred or more cities taken, and five times as many ships burnt or sunk. He asked me what were the usual causes or motives that made one country go to war with another. I answered, they were innumerable, but I should only mention a few of the chief. Sometimes the ambition of princes, 
who never think they have land or people enough to govern, sometimes the corruption of ministers who engage their master in a war in order to stifle or divert the clamor of the subjects against their evil administration. Difference in opinions hath cost many millions of lives. For instance, whether flesh be bread or bread be flesh, whether the juice of a certain berry be blood or wine, whether whistling be a vice or a virtue, whether it be better to kiss a post or throw it into the fire, what is the best color for a coat, whether black, white, red, or gray, and whether it should be long or short, narrow or wide, dirty or clean, with many more. Neither are any wars so furious and bloody or of so long continuance as those occasioned by difference in opinion, especially if it be in things indifferent. Sometimes the quarrel between two princes is to decide which of them shall dispossess a third of his dominions where neither of them pretend to any right. Sometimes one prince quarreleth with another for fear the other should quarrel with him. Sometimes a war is entered upon because the enemy is too strong and sometimes because he is too weak. Sometimes our neighbors want the things which we have or have the things which we want and we both fight till they take ours or give us theirs. It is a very justifiable cause of war to invade a country after the people have been wasted by famine, destroyed by pestilence, or embroiled by factions amongst themselves. It is justifiable to enter into a war against our nearest ally when one of his towns lies convenient to us, or a territory of land that would render our dominions round and compact. If a prince send forces into a nation where the people are poor and ignorant, he may lawfully put half of them to death and make slaves of the rest in order to civilize and reduce them from their barbarous way of living. It is a very kingly, honorable, and frequent practice when one prince desires the assistance of another to secure him against an invasion that the assistant, when he hath driven out the invader, should seize on the dominions himself and kill, imprison, or banish the prince he came to relieve. Alliance by blood or marriage is a sufficient cause of war between princes, and the nearer the kindred is, the greater is their disposition to quarrel. Poor nations are hungry, and rich nations are proud, and pride and hunger will ever be at variance. For these reasons, the trade of a soldier is held the most honorable of all others, because a soldier is a yahoo hired to kill in cold blood as many of his own species who have never offended him as possibly he can. There is, likewise, a kind of beggarly princes in Europe not able to make war by themselves who hire out their troops to richer nations for so much a day to each man, of which they keep three-fourths to themselves, and it is the best part of their maintenance. Such are those in many northern parts of Europe. What you have told me, said my master, upon the subject of war, doth indeed discover most admirably the effects of that reason you pretend to. However, it is happy that the shame is greater than the danger, and that nature hath left you utterly incapable of doing much mischief. For your mouths lying flat with your faces, you can hardly bite each other to any purpose unless by consent. Then, as to the claws upon your feet before and behind— they are so short and tender that one of our yahoos would drive a dozen of yours before him, 
and therefore, in recounting the numbers of those who have been killed in battle, I cannot but think that you have said the thing which is not. I could not forbear shaking my head and smiling a little at his ignorance, and, being no stranger to the art of war, I gave him a description of cannons, culverns, muskets, carabines, pistols, bullets, powder, swords, bayonets, sieges, retreats, attacks, undermines, countermines, bombardments, sea fights, ships sunk with a thousand men, twenty thousand killed on each side, dying groans, limbs flying in the air, smoke, noise, confusion, trampling to death under horses' feet, flight, pursuit, victory, fields strewed with carcasses left for food to dogs and wolves and birds of prey, plundering, stripping, ravishing, burning and destroying, and to set forth the valour of my own dear countrymen, I assured him that I had seen them blow up a hundred enemies at once in a siege, and as many in a ship, and beheld the dead bodies drop down in pieces from the clouds to the great diversion of all the spectators. I was going on to more particulars, when my master commanded me silence. He said, whoever understood the nature of Yahoo's, might easily believe it is possible for so vile an animal to be capable of every action I had named if their strength and cunning equaled their malice. But as my discourse had increased his abhorrence of the whole species, so he found it gave him a disturbance in his mind to which he was wholly a stranger before. He thought his ears being used to such abominable words might, by degrees, admit them with less detestation that although he hated the yahoos of this country, yet he no more blamed them for their odious qualities than he did a gnaya, a bird of prey, for its cruelty or a sharp stone for cutting his hoof. But when a creature pretending to reason could be capable of such enormities, he dreaded lest the corruption of that faculty might be worse than brutality itself. He seemed therefore confident that instead of reason, we were only possessed of some quality fitted to increase our natural vices, as the reflection from a troubled stream returns the image of an ill-shaped body, not only larger, but more distorted. He added that he had heard too much upon the subject of war, both in this and some former discourses. There was another point which a little perplexed him at present. I had said that some of our crew left their country on account of being ruined by law, that I had already explained the meaning of the word, but he was at a loss how it should come to pass that the law, which was intended for every man's preservation, should be any man's ruin. Therefore, he desired to be farther satisfied what I meant by law and the dispensers thereof according to the present practice in my own country, because he thought nature and reason were sufficient guides for a reasonable animal, as we pretend to be, in showing us what we ought to do and what to avoid. I assured his honour that law was a science wherein I had not much conversed farther than by employing advocates in vain upon some injustices that had been done me. However, I would give him all the satisfaction I was able. I said there was a society of men among us, bred up from their youth, in the art of proving by words multiplied for the purpose that white is black and black is white, according as they are paid. To this society, all the rest of the people are slaves. For example, 
If my neighbor hath a mind to my cow, he hires a lawyer to prove that he ought to have my cow from me. I must then hire another to defend my right, it being against all rules of law that any man should be allowed to speak for himself. Now, in this case, I who am the true owner lie under two great disadvantages. First, my lawyer, being practiced almost from his cradle in defending falsehoods, is quite out of his element when he would be an advocate for justice, which, as an office unnatural, he always attempts with great awkwardness, if not with ill will. The second disadvantage is that my lawyer must proceed with great caution, or else he will be reprimanded by the judges and abhorred by his brethren as one who would lessen the practice of the law. And therefore, I have but two methods to preserve my cow. The first is to gain over my adversary's lawyer with a double fee, who will then betray his client by insinuating that he hath justice on his side. The second way is for my lawyer to make my cause appear as unjustly as he can by allowing the cow to belong to my adversary. And this, if it be skillfully done, will certainly bespeak the favor of the bench. Now, your honor is to know that these judges are persons appointed to decide all controversies of property as well as for the trial of criminals and picked out from the most dexterous lawyers who are grown old or lazy and having been biased all their lives against truth and equity, lie under such a fatal necessity of favoring fraud, perjury, and oppression, that I have known some of them to have refused a large bribe from the side where justice lay, rather than injure the faculty by doing anything unbecoming their nature or their office. It is a maxim among these lawyers that whatever hath been done before may legally be done again. And therefore, they take special care to record all the decisions formerly made against common justice and the general reason of mankind. These, under the name of precedents, they produce as authorities to justify the most iniquitous opinions, and the judges never fail of directing accordingly. In pleading, they studiously avoid entering into the merits of the cause but are loud, violent, and tedious in dwelling upon all circumstances which are not to the purpose. For instance, in the case already mentioned, they never desire to know what claim or title my adversary hath to my cow, but whether the said cow were red or black, her horns long or short, whether the field I graze her in be round or square, whether she were milked at home or abroad, what diseases she is subject to, and the like after which they consult precedents, adjourn the cause from time to time, and in ten, twenty, or thirty years come to an issue. It is likewise to be observed that this society hath a peculiar cant and jargon of their own that no other mortal can understand, and wherein all their laws are written, which they take special care to multiply, whereby they have wholly confounded the very essence of truth and falsehood, of right and wrong, so that it will take thirty years to decide whether the field left me by my ancestors for six generations belonged to me or to a stranger three hundred miles off. In the trial of persons accused for crimes against the state, the method is much more short and commendable. The judge first sends to sound the disposition of those in power, after which he can easily hang or save the criminal, strictly preserving all the forms of law. Here my master interposing said it was a pity, 
that creatures endowed with such prodigious abilities of mind as these lawyers by the description I gave of them must certainly be, were not rather encouraged to be instructors of others in wisdom and knowledge, in answer to which I assured his honour that in all points out of their own trade they were usually the most ignorant and stupid generation among us, the most despicable in common conversation, avowed enemies to all knowledge and learning, and equally disposed to pervert the general reason of mankind in every other subject of discourse as in that of their own profession. Chapter 6 A Continuation of the State of England under Queen Anne The Character of a First Minister in the Courts of Europe My master was yet wholly at a loss to understand what motives could incite this race of lawyers to perplex, dispute, and weary themselves by engaging in a confederacy of injustice merely for the sake of injuring their fellow animals. Neither could he comprehend what I meant in saying they did it for hire. Whereupon I was at much pains to describe to him the use of money, the materials it was made of, and the value of the metals. That when a Yahoo had got a great store of this precious substance, he was able to purchase whatever he had a mind to. The finest clothes, the noblest house, great tracts of land, the most costly meats and drinks, and have his choice of the most beautiful females. Therefore, since money alone was able to perform all these feats, our yahoos thought they could never have enough of it to spend or to save, as they found themselves inclined from their natural bent either to profusion or avarice. That the rich man enjoyed the fruit of the poor man's labor, and the latter were a thousand to one in proportion to the former that the bulk of our people was forced to live miserably by laboring every day for small wages to make a few live plentifully. I enlarged myself much on these and many other particulars in the same purpose, but his honor was still to seek, for he went upon a supposition that all animals had a title to their share in the productions of the earth, and especially those who presided over the rest. Therefore, he desired I would let him know what these costly meats were, and how many of us happened to want them. Whereupon I enumerated as many sorts as came into my head, with the various methods of dressing them, which could not be done without sending vessels by sea to every part of the world, as well for liquors to drink, as for sauces, and innumerable other conveniences. I assured him that this whole globe of earth must be at least three times gone round, before one of our better female yahoos could get her breakfast or a cup to put it in. He said that must needs be a miserable country which cannot furnish food for its own inhabitants. But what he chiefly wondered at was how such vast tracts of ground, as I described, should be wholly without fresh water, and the people put to the necessity of sending over the sea for drink. I replied that England, the dear place of my nativity, was computed to produce three times the quantity of food, more than its inhabitants are able to consume, as well as liquors extracted from grain or pressed out of the fruit of certain trees, which made excellent drink, and the same proportion in every other convenience of life. But in order to feed the luxury and intemperance of the males and the vanity of the females, we sent away the greatest part of our necessary things to other countries, from whence, in return, we brought the materials of disease, folly, and vice to spend among ourselves. Hence it follows of necessity 
that vast numbers of our people are compelled to seek their livelihood by begging, robbing, stealing, cheating, pimping, forswearing, flattering, subordinating, forging, gaming, lying, fawning, hectoring, voting, scribbling, strategizing, poisoning, whoring, canting, libeling, free-thinking, and the like occupations, every one of which terms I was at much pains to make him understand. That wine was not imported among us from foreign countries to supply the want of water or other drinks, but because it was a sort of liquid which made us merry by putting us out of our senses, diverted all melancholy thoughts, begat wild extravagant imaginations in the brain, raised our hopes and banished our fears, suspended every office of reason for a time, and deprived us of the use of our limbs until we fell into a profound sleep, although it must be confessed that we always awaked sick and dispirited, and that the use of this liquor filled us with diseases which made our lives uncomfortable and short. But beside all this, the bulk of our people supported themselves by furnishing the necessaries or contrivances of life to the rich and to each other. For instance, when I am at home and dressed as I ought to be, I carry on my body the workmanship of an hundred tradesmen. The building and furniture of my house employ as many more, and five times the number to adorn my wife. I was going on to tell him of another sort of people, who get their livelihood by attending the sick, having upon some occasions informed his honour that many of my crew had died of diseases. But here it was, with the utmost difficulty, that I brought him to apprehend what I meant. He could easily conceive that a Huinum grew weak and heavy a few days before his death, or by some accident might hurt a limb, but that nature, who worketh all things to perfection, should suffer any pains to breed in our bodies, he thought impossible, and desired to know the reason of so unaccountable an evil. I told him we fed on a thousand things which operated contrary to each other, that we ate when we were not hungry, and drank without the provocation of thirst, that we sat whole nights drinking strong liquors without eating a bit, which disposed us to sloth, inflamed our bodies, and precipitated or prevented digestion, that prostitute female yahoos acquired a certain malady, which bred rottenness in the bones of those who fell into their embraces, that this and many other diseases were propagated from father to son, so that great numbers come into the world with complicated maladies upon them, that it would be endless to give him a catalogue of all diseases incident to human bodies, for they could not be fewer than five or six hundred spread over every limb and joint, in short, every part external and intestine having diseases appropriated to each, to remedy which there was a sort of people bred up among us in the profession or pretense of curing the sick. And because I had some skill in the faculty, I would, in gratitude to his honour, let him know the whole mystery and method by which they proceed. Their fundamental is that all diseases arise from repletion, from whence they conclude that a great evacuation of the body is necessary, either through the natural passage or upwards at the mouth. Their next business is from herbs, minerals, gums, oils, shells, salts, juices, seaweed, excrements, barks of trees, serpents, toads, frogs, spiders, dead men's flesh and bones, beasts and fish, 
to form a composition for smell and taste the most abominable, nauseous, and detestable that they can possibly contrive, which the stomach immediately rejects with loathing. And this they call a vomit. Or else, from the same storehouse, with some other poisonous additions, they command us to take in at the orifice above or below, just as the physician then happens to be disposed, a medicine equally annoying and disgustful to the bowels, which, relaxing the belly, drives down all before it. And this they call a purge, or a clyster. For nature, as the physicians allege, having intended the superior anterior orifice only for the intromission of solids and liquids, and the inferior posterior for ejection, these artists, ingeniously considering that in all diseases nature is forced out of her seat, therefore to replace her in it, the body must be treated in a manner directly contrary by interchanging the use of each orifice, forcing solids and liquids in at the anus and making evacuations at the mouth. But besides real diseases, we are subject to many that are only imaginary, for which the physicians have invented imaginary cures. These have their several names, and so have the drugs that are proper for them, and with these our female yahoos are always infested. One great excellency in this tribe is their skill at prognostics, wherein they seldom fail. Their predictions in real diseases, when they rise to any degree of malignity, generally portending death, which is always in their power, when recovery is not. And therefore, upon any unexpected signs of amendment, after they have pronounced their sentence, rather than be accused as false prophets, they know how to approve their sagacity to the world by a reasonable dose. They are likewise of special use to husbands and wives, who are grown weary of their mates, to eldest sons, to great ministers of state, and often to princes. I had formerly, upon occasion, discoursed with my master upon the nature of government in general, and particularly of our own excellent constitution, deservedly the wonder and envy of the whole world. But having here accidentally mentioned a minister of state, he commanded me some time after to inform him what species of Yahoo I particularly meant by that appellation. I told him that a first or chief minister of state whom I intended to describe was a creature wholly exempt from joy and grief, love and hatred, pity and anger, at least makes use of no other passions but a violent desire of wealth, power and titles, that he applies his words to all uses except to the indication of his mind, that he never tells the truth but with an intent that you should take it for a lie, nor a lie but with a design that you should take it for a truth, that those he speaks worst of behind their backs are in the surest way to preferment, and whenever he begins to praise you to others or to yourself, you are from that day forlorn. The worst mark you can receive is a promise especially when it is confirmed with an oath, after which every wise man retires and gives over all hopes. There are three methods by which a man may rise to be chief minister. The first is by knowing how, with prudence, to dispose of a wife, a daughter, or a sister. The second, by betraying or undermining his predecessor. And the third is by a furious zeal in public assemblies against the corruptions of the court. But a wise prince would rather choose to employ those who practice the last of these methods, because such zealots prove always the most obsequious and subservient to the will and passions of their master. 
that these ministers, having all employments at their disposal, preserve themselves in power by bribing the majority of a senate or great council, and at last by an expedient called an act of indemnity, whereof I described the nature to him. They secure themselves from after-reckonings and retire from the public laden with the spoils of the nation. The palace of a chief minister is a seminary to breed up others in his own trade. The pages, lackeys, and porter, by imitating their master, become ministers of state in their several districts and learn to excel in the three principal ingredients of insolence, lying, and bribery. Accordingly, they have a subaltern court paid to them by persons of the best rank, and sometimes, by the force of dexterity and impudence, arrive through several gradations to be successors to their lord. He is usually governed by a decayed wench or favorite footman, who are the tunnels through which all graces are conveyed, and may properly be called, in the last resort, the governors of the kingdom. One day, my master, having heard me mention the nobility of my country, was pleased to make me a compliment which I could not pretend to deserve that he was sure I must have been born of some noble family, because I far exceeded in shape, color, and cleanliness all the yahoos of his nation, although I seemed to fail in strength and agility, which must be imputed to my different way of living from those other brutes. And besides, I was not only endowed with the faculty of speech, but likewise with some rudiments of reason to a degree, that with all his acquaintance I passed for a prodigy." He made me observe that among the Hohinam, the white, the sorrel, and the iron grey were not so exactly shaped as the bay, the dapple grey, and the black, nor born with equal talents of mind or a capacity to improve them, and therefore continued always in the condition of servants without ever aspiring to match out of their own race, which in that country would be reckoned monstrous and unnatural." I made his honor my most humble acknowledgments for the good opinion he was pleased to conceive of me, but assured him at the same time that my birth was of the lowest sort, having been born of plain, honest parents who were just able to give me a tolerable education, that nobility among us was altogether a different thing from the idea he had of it, that our young noblemen are bred from their childhood in idleness and luxury, that as soon as years will permit— they consume their vigor and contract odious diseases among lewd females, and when their fortunes are almost ruined, they marry some woman of mean birth, disagreeable person, and unsound constitution merely for the sake of money whom they hate and despise. That the productions of such marriages are generally scrofulous, rickety, or deformed children, by which means the family seldom continues above three generations, unless the wife take care to provide a healthy father among her neighbors or domestics in order to improve and continue the breed. That a weak, diseased body, a meager countenance, and shallow complexion are the true marks of noble blood, and a healthy, robust appearance is so disgraceful in a man of quality that the world concludes his real father to have been a groom or a coachman. The imperfections of his mind run parallel with those of his body, being a composition of spleen, dullness, ignorance, caprice, sensuality, and pride. Without the consent of this illustrious body, no law can be enacted, repealed, or altered, and these nobles have likewise the decisions of all our possessions without appeal. I continue to be blown away that when this book came out 
it was not an outrage. It was, of course, written anonymously. You know, he had a fake name when he did it. But once people knew who it was who wrote it and knew what it was that was in the book, I continue to be amazed that it became a game of where do I appear in this book rather than how can we get to him and hang him for writing this book. It gives me some faith in in human beings that that was our response. At the same time, it it makes me kind of horrified that they weren't chagrined and embarrassed and uh, scrambling to change their their public view. <laughs> now they were represented by Jonathan Swift. But, uh, but there he is, speaking truth to power, as it were. So I promised you that I would explain the whole uh, orange thing that happens at the beginning of chapter five, way back at the beginning. And this goes back to where Gulliver was explaining, um, in obedience, therefore, to his honor's commands, that would be the Weenum master. I related to him the revolution under the Prince of Orange, the long war with France entered into by the said prince and renewed by his successor, the present queen, that's Queen Anne, wherein the greatest powers of Christendom were engaged and which I still continued and which still continued. Uh, this was going back to... James the Second. James the Second becomes uh, James. He, James the Second of England came to the throne in 1685. He's Catholic, and the country at this time was largely Protestant. So uh, he didn't do very well, and even though he did have a son, uh, people found a way to get him out, which of course required subterfuge, and get his daughter Mary from a previous marriage in, now Mary was a Protestant, and she was married to her first column, co first cousin, William of Orange, who I'm sure you've heard of. He was uh, from the Netherlands, also a Protestant. So this was successful. This is William and Mary, William III, Mary II. It was a glorious revolution because it was largely a bloodless one. And uh, those two are the ones who settled the Declaration of Rights, February 13th, 1689, which is what made Parliament supreme ruler in England. So now you have a date for when that shift happened. Well, all of that is well and good, but James II wasn't killed. Instead, he ran to France. The French King Louis XIV was pro-James, Catholic country, pro-Catholic James, and helped James II invade Ireland. Well, this provoked William and Mary. There was no love lost between William and Louis. And so they went to war against France in 1689. And uh, James was defeated in Ireland in 1690. And the war with France continued until 1697. It is called the War of the Grand Alliance. Then Mary II dies 1694 during that war. William lasted until 1702 and then is uh, succeeded by his sister-in-law, who is Queen Anne, who is the younger daughter of James II. And six weeks after she became queen, Great Britain declared war on France, and that is when the War of Spanish Succession, the war that Swift keeps alluding to throughout the book, uh, that's when it started. So, he's it, it's like he just does the... Uh, what is that, the Inigo Montoya line? No, it's too much. Let me sum up. He, he kind of does that for the horse and, and then 
launches on into the different conflicts that you have, whether um, whether flesh be bread or whether blood be wine. Um, whistling being a vice or a virtue, that was uh, a dig at whether it was okay to have music in church. Uh, kiss a post or throw it in a fire. Is a crucifix idolatrous or is it uh, a post that you can kiss? Uh, what is the best color for a coat? This was not an allusion to red coats or blue coats or anything like that. It was a uh, reference to vestments, church vestments. Because, of course, where is Swift going to go when he when he do- goes, you know, whips out his wand and says, reducto, he is going to go to religious um, issues. Because, of course, people get riled up about these things and and nothing's changed. And, uh, and that is going to be the easiest place to make a dig and tick people off. And nobody does it like Swift. And so there it is. I, we have, oh my gosh, we only have two more weeks of Jonathan Swift. We will do chapters seven through eight, the last week of September, and we will do chapters nine through 11, the end of the book for the first week in October. Oh, I am so excited. Lots and lots of really exciting stuff is happening. And uh, I, I can't tell you about all of it yet, but I will as soon as I can. And on that note, I will leave you. I hope you've had a great week. Uh, for me, it's been a couple of weeks since I podcast for you. I know it's only been a week since you've listened, but uh, I hope that the last couple of weeks have been as good to you as they have to me. And I hope that fall in whatever format it appears to you, uh, if you are in the Northern Hemisphere. I hope that it is wonderful and marvelous for you as well. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways, Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, volume two, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlit.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>